little bit about me. Yeah, let's, enough about Jesus. Let's talk about me. I'm just kidding. Okay. That's not the way this is going to go this morning. But here's the deal. I am not a morning person. Okay. Anybody a morning person? Oh, we have applause. See, I know my people. How many people are morning people? Okay. You're not my people. That's fine. I appreciate you. Okay. How many people are not morning people? Let's see those hands. Oh, the hands with, a, with conviction, they go up. All right. Now, there's, in, our, in our family, okay, in our family, I am not a morning person, um, but there's one individual in our family that is a morning person, and that is our dog, Buddy. <laughs> Buddy is a morning dog. And if, you, if Buddy hears even the slightest rustling in our room, he's at the door, and he's right there, and he's up there, and he's like barking. It's, it's like 5.30, and he's barking. We let him in. He's on the bed. He's off the bed. He's on the bed. He's off the bed. It's like he's shot out of a little dog cannon, right? Every morning. It's like he just really, he wakes up every morning. He's like, I'm alive, and he's like, boom, and it's like, but for Buddy, the energy level, like it all goes downhill from there for Buddy, okay? Now, for me, I'm almost the exact opposite. I am not a morning person. I am not shot out of a person canon in any way, shape you can imagine. I need a little while to warm up, okay? The motor has to run a little bit before things start to warm up. And one of the things that we've done this year, in, we started this in September actually, and I was wondering how long it was going to keep going, but it has actually kept going, is that Kelly and I would wake up early in the morning and we would go for a walk in the morning. So we go, the alarm goes off at 5.30 every morning, and then I hit the snooze button, okay? And it's always, a, it's usually like one or two snoozes, but eventually we make it up and we get on all of our gear. It's been cold. Has anybody noticed that it's been cold? Like we Californians, we're all lightweights, right? So we have our little beanies on and we've got our gloves and we're walking and we do like two miles or whatever. One of the cool things about doing, about this habit, which has been wonderful, other than having a chance to communicate and talk with Kelly, um, and again, Remember, like, I, I'm an internal processor. Kelly's an external processor, so it takes me a while to get my words going in the morning, too. Anybody like that here? Yeah, even if you're an early riser, you not, might not be an external processor. Now, you get an early riser and an external processor, that's a lot of action in the morning. I see you, Ryan, and I'm imagining that's you. Okay, but here's the deal. One of the cool things about this is that getting up early in the morning has allowed us for most of the days banning, you know, aside for a day of being sick or an occasional sleep-in day, like we've been able to actually see the sunrise every morning for like eight months. And it's been kind of this cool experience that I really have never had it that long of a stretch. And maybe some of you have, and you're, you're constant early risers, but one of the things that I've appreciated about sunrise is just how gradual it is. Like, for me to get warmed up for the day, like, we go out, and when we walk out the door, it's dark. And while we're on the walk, you start to, it starts to, uh, to gradually get lighter. Even before the sun's up, the light comes, the light comes, the light comes. And then from where we're at and we're walking, like, when the sun comes up, it comes up right over Saddleback Mountain, right about that, that spot. And so in the eastern sky, you can, you can see this gradual, and then it's so cold in the morning, there's mornings where we'll go out and we'll just kind of let the sun hit our face because it's so cold and you can feel the heat and the warmth, but it's this gradual experience. And this passage that Andrew read for us this morning is so interesting in the Gospel of John because if you read it, what you notice is that John is describing the resurrection of Jesus like a dawning. It's not all at once. It's not like somebody flips on the light. It's like a sunrise. 
It's a dawn. And what I want to look at today is I want to look at this idea about the, this, gradual, this gradual sense of realizing Jesus is alive. And realizing that, it produces a couple things that John wants to point out, that once people realize it, they see Jesus, and then they believe. And so I want to look at these three things in this passage today and just see what God has for us this Easter Sunday. Are you guys with us? You with it? All right, let's, let's look in John chapter 20, John chapter 20, and let's take a look at this idea that John sees Jesus' death as a move, his death is a move into darkness, and his resurrection is a gradual dawning and awareness that Jesus is alive. So let's take a look at this. Actually, let's go back just really quickly back to chapter 19. In chapter 19, you have this interesting passage beginning in verse 38. And to understand the resurrection, we just kind of go back a little bit into this passage and to look at what happens before, before this passage and what happens after Jesus dies. And the, one of the things that John wants to make clear is that Jesus did die. In our Good Friday service, we talked about this. He does die. He's He's crucified, but crucifixion is not a lethal way of killing someone that, as a means of capital punishment, it's meant to extend suffering. And so at the end, they would break the legs of the people so they couldn't push themselves up to get a breath. And so Jesus either succumbs to either loss of blood or asphyxiation or shock, but for him, when they get to him, he's already died. And so what they do is they take a, a, a spear and they shove it up into his side. Now, if someone is alive and they get stabbed, they're going, to make a, they're going to make a noise. But Jesus was dead when they did it. Like, and they knew it, and John wants to make it clear. John wants to make this evidence very clear. Jesus has been killed. He is dead. And when they stab him, the blood and the water start to come out from his lungs. And what we see is that two men step up and stick their necks out to make provisions for his burial. Look at 1938. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, this was before the passage that Andrew read, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, secretly, for fear of the Jewish leaders, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he took the body away. Verse 39. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, he was also a secret a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of this powdery substance. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And this would be the custom. And again, John wants to make it clear, not only is Jesus dead, but he has been dead and properly buried. He has been um, not in the ground, but he has been wrapped in linen cloths with spices. The spices would be there, one, to, to honor the person who was dead, but it would also be a means in the way that the Jewish custom was. You would take the body and lay it on a center slab in a tomb, and then after a year you would come back and you would gather the bones up and put it into an ossuary, a bone box. And so to, in order to keep kind of... The, honestly, to keep the smells of decomposition down, they would use all these spices with the linen cloths to bound him up. So Jesus is bound up. We saw with Lazarus, right? Lazarus gets bound up, and, so, and then he, Jesus calls him out of the tomb, and Lazarus comes hopping out of the tomb, right? But what's interesting is that's not the way that Jesus is going to do it, but Jesus has been buried. Darkness falls. The light of the world 
has been snuffed out. And John wants us to see, like he says in chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. John wants us to see that dawn is coming. So we see this in the, cha- in the passage that Andrew read, chapter 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark. Look, John makes a big deal in his gospel about light and dark. Jesus is the light of the world. You walk in the light. But those who do not walk in darkness, Nicodemus comes to him at night in the darkness. He doesn't understand who Jesus is. When Judas betrays him, he betrays him and John says, and it was night. It's dark. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness is trying to overcome the light, but it cannot. There is this theme of light and darkness. And when Mary comes, even though Jesus has been raised, it is still dark. So what does she see? What does she see? It's while it's still dark, and she sees that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. What can you see in the dark? If you're out early in the morning and it's dark and you go, like, and again, you're like, people are like, well, why didn't Mary go in the tomb? I'm like, look, if you're in a graveyard and it's dark, are you going to go in the doorway of the mausoleum? There's no light inside? She just sees that it's dark. It's one piece of the puzzle. It's the gradual, it's the first note of light in the story. She sees very little. It's obscured by the darkness. She just knows the door, the, the stone has been removed And she doesn't know what has happened. Actually, she has a theory about what has happened, and she'll explain it. Look in verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's probably John who's writing this gospel. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John has a pretty good sense of his relationship with Jesus, right? I think that's a good way to go about life, like I am the one whom Jesus loved. So he doesn't mention his own name, but she runs, she tells Peter, she tells John, and, they, and she says this, they have taken the Lord, and we don't know where they have laid him. Now, her theory is that they, whoever they are, now they could be grave robbers, that would be the truth, that it could be grave robbers that have rolled the stone away and taken anything valuable out of the tomb, okay, although this is a crucified man. Probably what she's saying is they, those who conspired to kill him, have taken the body too. They have taken him away. So she reports they have taken the body. But as we see, as the passage goes on, the darkness is lifting and, the, and there is a dawning that is happening gradually, slowly. 20 verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I think John was a little competitive. I don't know why he includes this detail. He's like, I can run faster than Peter. Like, I don't know. But I do think it's like, kind of like, why, why, is there any reason why this is John better? I think it's just that John was younger than Peter. That's the tradition. It would be like if Andrew and I were like, let's make a donut run, and we started running over to the donut shop over here. Like, he would beat me, okay? Because he's younger, and he's more spry. He's got, he's got a better pace than I do. That's probably what's going on here. Peter's a little older. John is a little younger. John shows up first, but he does not go in. What does he do? He reaches the tomb first. Um, sorry, he, uh, where are we at? 26. Uh, both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first, verse 5, and stooped to look in. 
So these tombs, these, these, these made tombs are a little lower. So he's like looking in, and what does he see? He sees a slab, and he sees all the burial cloths still there on the slab. A little bit of dawning. He sees the stone has been rolled away. Now he sees a little bit more. Then Peter comes. Peter doesn't stop. Typical Peter. Runs right in. Look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter comes in. He went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. So Simon Peter shows up. It's like this dawning. He sees a stone rolled away. He sees the linens, but he also sees something else. He sees the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. It is beginning to dawn. Now, why are these details significant? Okay? You might be wondering, like, what, what is with all these details? Here's a few things. Okay? One, John is very interested in providing evidence. The whole book actually sounds a little bit like a trial, like Jesus is being put on trial, and there's evidence being presented for him and against him. And in the evidence for him, here's the evidence. Okay? The linen cloths are important, Because if someone had stolen the body, like if they had come and taken the body, they would not have unwrapped it first. That's gross. That would have defiled them, right? They would have taken the whole thing wrapped up. If they were grave robbers, if they were grave robbers, they would have done just the opposite. They would have left the body and taken the grave robbings. It's like the godfather, like leave the gun, take the cannoli, right? Take the, the most valuable thing, the godfather, it's a movie, you guys, okay, thank you. Okay, All right, I'm just checking with everybody because it was a little crickets and there's not like a second service where I can cut these jokes out, okay? So they, they leave, they, if you were a grave robber, you leave the body, you take the spices and the wrappings and go, but it's all, it's all out of whack, like the body's gone, but all the wrappings are still there. And then the face covering, this face covering would have been something that they would have taken, especially with the head, as you prepare someone for burial, you wrap the head, but you wrap it so the mouth is shut. And you wrap it up really tight, but it seems like what Jesus did somehow, he gets out of the, out of the, cl- the cloths, okay? Later on, we see him walk into a, into a locked room, like through the door, like he, some, in his resurrected body, there's some difference, but he takes and unwraps the, the head covering And then he does something that no grave robber would ever do. He rolls it back up, and he folds it, and he places it down. All of these these details tell us this is not grave robbers, this is not the authorities, this is something else. This is something a little bit bizarre, to be honest. And everybody, they're like, what do we make of all of this? They don't fully understand. Look at verse 8. So the light is dawning. The dawn, it is dawning. It's gradual. The stone has been rolled away. We see the grave clothes. We see the head covering. And John is going to note that some kind of get it and others still don't get it. Look at 28. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, he also went in. He saw and he believed. Verse 9, but as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So there's still this mixture of like, maybe there's some optimism, like John might be optimistic, but doesn't say anything about Peter, like Peter's not optimistic. He doesn't understand, no, they don't totally understand. And then look at verse 11, or verse 10, the disciples then go back to their homes, but Mary stayed. We forget about Mary in this, like it seems like Peter at least outran Mary, so you know, 
Anyway, uh, so John outruns Peter, Peter outruns Mary, but Mary eventually comes to the tomb. But she stands weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she then stoops to look in. And what she sees is even more light. The dawn has continued to go. Not only has the stone been rolled away, not only the grave clothes left, not only is the head covering left, but now there are two angels. Look at 12.12. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. I kind of love how gradual this is and how like Peter and John, they go back home, but in the meantime, God's like, all right, cue the angels. Like, they appear out of nowhere. Now, they're, now she looks in, and now there's angels, and she sees these angels, these messengers, and like a good messenger, angels will oftentimes, when they show up, and when God is trying to work on somebody's heart, oftentimes what he will do is he will ask leading questions. And the angels say to her, why are you weeping? And it's a leading question because they're trying to say, hey, hey, you don't need to cry. You don't need to cry. But she answers honestly. She says, look, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And she answers honestly, but before she can put it all together, she's distracted by someone behind her. It must be the gardener. Verse 14 Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was him. Do you get the gradual nature of this? The gradual nature, like the stone's been rolled away, the grave closed, the head covering, the angels, and now we turn around, there's a guy here, but we don't exactly know who it is. And I love, I love that Jesus' first resurrection appearance, he's mistaken for a landscaper. I don't think I ever look at people landscaping again in our community. If they ever got a blower, you know, and like, could be Jesus. Could be Jesus. Could be anywhere, right? Okay, so Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? He says the same question. He says, who are you looking for? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him away. She's like, just, I just want to honor him in his burial. I just want to get him to the right spot for his burial. And then Jesus said to her, Mary? And she turned to him, and she says, Rabboni! And for John, for readers of John, and those of you who have been following along, what you just witnessed, well, first of all, the sun has now crested the eastern horizon. It's not just the gradual light of pre-dawn as we've seen, like, we've got all this evidence, but we don't know what's going on. But now, oh yeah, it's dawn. It's Jesus. He's alive. She recognizes it. But one of the other things that we see here is that in John chapter 10, Jesus talks about that, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and he says, he says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. He says, my sheep follow me because they know my voice, and that I call them, I call them out, and I call them by name. And Mary's like, it must be the gardener, and then Jesus says, 
Mary, and she's like, it's the good shepherd. She knows the voice. She knows the sound of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the gradualness of dawn and the suddenness then of recognizing of the crescenting of the sun over the horizon, this is the moment. The good shepherd is called the name of Mary. She knows that voice. She hears, she sees, and she believes. Dawn has broken and Mary is the first to see it. And she must have, she must have just grabbed him. She must have just hugged him. She must have just somehow just grabbed on for all she had because he says, hey, don't stop clinging to me. Look at verse 17. He says, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And I want to spend just the rest of our time just talking about this idea. Once people recognize that Jesus, the, the tomb is empty, and all the evidence starts to point to Jesus is alive, and then they see Jesus, what John is going to note is that when people see Jesus, really see him, they believe. When people see Jesus, when they really see him, they believe. Verse 19, on that eve, the evening of the first day of the week, the doors were locked, the disciples for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace to you, shalom aleichem. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them the unique wound on his side. None of the others on the crosses that day had the wound in their side. He shows them the unique wound on his side. Again, John is interested in these details. And look what happens. Then the disciples, well, it's an unfortunate translation by the ESV. It says that the disciples were glad. That is like the, mo the biggest understatement in the world. The word there is actually the word rejoiced. When they saw him, they rejoiced. And again, back to John, Mary has seen the Lord and she has recognized him for who he is. The disciples now see the Lord and they recognize who he is and they rejoice. And John is going to make this big point about those who see the Lord and they believe. And here's the question. One of the things that John wants to ask, what about those who have never seen Jesus? What about those who were never eyewitnesses? John was an eyewitness of the resurrection. He was there. Jesus appeared to him. Mary was there. She's an eyewitness. Jesus appeared to her. She saw him. What about those who have never seen Jesus alive? They've never had a resurrection appearance of Jesus. I mean, Thomas gets a resurrection appearance. Peter gets a resurrection appearance. The disciples do. But what about those who do not get to see Jesus? Can they still believe? Is there another way of seeing Jesus? Can light continue to dawn on those in darkness? And this is one of the most fascinating themes in the Gospel of John. 
The next passage over, we're going to have this example where Jesus appears to the, to the ten, minus Judas, gone, but Thomas is also not there. And Thomas, and they say, they say, Thomas, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas is like, look, I can't do it unless you guys remember the story, Doubting Thomas. Like, I, I need to put my fingers in his wounds, I need to put my hand in his side until I believe. And then, so Tom, uh, Thomas is there, Jesus shows up, and he says, peace to you. And Thomas is, and he's all, hey, here you go, Thomas. And Thomas is like, my Lord and my God. But then Jesus says this to him. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is going to be one of the most important things for John because when John writes this, John is the last living apostle. He's the last living eyewitness. And, they, and this message needs to go on and on and on. Can people believe without the presence of eyewitnesses? Can people believe without being an eyewitness? And what John is going to say is absolutely. Back in chapter 9, he has a story about Jesus healing this guy, the man born blind. And he puts mud on his eyes, and he sends him down to wash, but then Jesus slips away. The guy washes, he can see, he's like, oh my gosh, the man named Jesus, he healed me. And everybody's like, well, where is he? And he's like, I don't know, I was blind. I can't point him out in a crowd. But I can say, I was blind, and now I see. I believe. Could the blind man see Jesus? No. Did he believe? Absolutely. And what John wants to make clear in the gospel, you don't have to be an eyewitness in order to believe. They saw and they believed, but not everybody needs to see in order to believe. Look back in verse 8. Back in verse 8, and this is where John, John's going to make this point about himself. After Peter runs, John beats him. He stays, he looks in, Peter runs in, and then after Peter runs in, John goes in. He sees everything that Peter sees, and it says this, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and when he goes in, and all he sees are the cloths, the, the stone rolled away, the cloths, and the head covering, and what does he do? He believes right there on the spot. I don't know exactly how it works, but John believed before he saw. He believed before he saw. And what happens is, in that case, it's the evidence that moves him to belief. He sees all this stuff and he starts piecing it together. He's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, Jesus must be alive. He believes without seeing. We talked about the man born blind. He believes because of his own testimony. He believes because of what Jesus has done for him. He has no idea what Jesus looks like. He couldn't pick him out of a crowd, but he knows that man allowed me to see. And whether it's the evidence or what God has done for him, he believes. I think as we go back to the beginning of this, that pre-passage about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two guys who had a lot to lose, wealthy, powerful, and it says Joseph of Arimathea was a secret follower of Jesus because he was afraid. He was afraid he was going to lose all the things that he had gained in his life. If I, if I come out and show myself to be a follower of Jesus, then I'm going to lose all this. But something happens when he sees what happens to Jesus. When he witnesses 
the trial and the scourgings and the crucifixion and the death, it changes him. And he's like, look, I got to... I gotta, I gotta find my buddy Nicodemus and we gotta make a deal to get his body and we gotta honor him. We gotta find a way to honor him. And I think it's interesting for Nicodemus and for Joseph of Arimathea, what moves them to faith is the darkness. They see just how dark the darkness is. And they're like, we gotta change, man. We gotta, we gotta come out and we got to honor Jesus now. I think it's so interesting. Sometimes when we come to faith, sometimes it's the evidence. Sometimes we look at the evidence, and the evidence seems compelling, and we come to faith. Maybe for others of us, we come because we hear that God has done something for someone, and it's undeniable, or maybe even that God has done something for you, and it's undeniable, like the man who's born blind. But sometimes when we come to faith, it's because we look around and we're like, the dark is dark. Like, it's almost shocking. We experience this oftentimes with news or with video. Like, the dark is so dark, I don't want any of that. I don't want any of that action. And Nicodemus and Joseph are like, that darkness is so dark. We have got to honor Jesus. We've got to follow Jesus. And I think this, this passage, this gradual coming to faith, this gradualness, the dawning, of the light, the light has been snuffed out, but now rising again. But we see the seeing and believing and the gradualness. There's all kinds of things that bring people to faith. Evidence can open our eyes. What Jesus has done for us or done for others can open our eyes. And even the darkness that opposes the light can inadvertently open our eyes. You know, I have never seen Jesus when I meet him in heaven, I will say, oh, that's what you look like. Couldn't pick him out of a crowd. I do know I'm looking at landscapers, though, right? Looking at gardeners. I've never had the resurrected Jesus appear to me, but I believe. I've never heard an audible voice, but I felt the call to follow him. I've never touched his wounds, but I gladly join my voice with others to say he is risen. You don't have to see in order to believe. For me, it dawned when I was 14 years old. I was 14 years old. I heard the good news that God loved me, that God wanted a personal relationship with me, that God would forgive my sins based on what Jesus had done on the cross, that he, he had me in mind when he died, that he would forgive me of my sins. And the invitation was to turn to him, to give my life to him, to put my faith in him, to entrust my life to him. That was the call in 1986, 1986. Young maybe for some of you, old for others. That was the call in the first century. And that's still the call today. Jesus offers a dawn, a dawning, out of the darkness into the light. He gives evidence. God does not leave us to just do it all on blind faith. There's still evidence to be had. And there's still powerful work being done in people's lives today. 
You have a few conversations around the tables out there over pancakes, and you start to hear God is at work in people's lives. God is taking people from hopelessness to hope. God is taking people from despair to moving in a direction they wouldn't have thought before. God is taking people on unexpected journeys. And I suppose if you feel like maybe you're here and like maybe you got drug here. Like this was me when I was a kid before I, you know, like it was like they drugged me to church. And, you know, when you're there, you're like, I'm just paying attention, kind of like I'm doing my thing, whatever. But maybe it, what, what, for me, what happened is it, it was kind of like a dawning, like God was starting to show up in places where I wasn't expecting him to get my attention in ways that I had not imagined, that it was this kind of gradual dawning until eventually it was like, look, Craig, I want you. I love you. I want you to entrust your life to me. I have plans. I know the plans I have for you. And I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're in a spot where it has been this gradual dawning in your life and you're starting to realize like God is bringing all these things into alignment because he wants you to know how much he deeply loves you. Like God will take every obstacle in your life and put it away. He will destroy every obstacle just so he can tell you how much he loves you. And maybe you're in a season like this where you just have the sense that God is destroying every obstacle because he's trying to say how much he loves you. Like every person you come across is like, God loves you. You're like, I don't know if I can hear this anymore. Like you just know God is coming after you. The shepherd is calling your name because he knows you by name. And if that's you, the invitation is the same. Jesus wants to have a personal relationship with you. All you need to do is turn toward him in prayer and just say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I pray that you would forgive my sins. I offer myself to you. A simple prayer like that. The dawn. The dawn. And when Jesus rises, it is this dawn and he has continued to dawn on the lives of people for 2,000 years, and he will do it long after I'm gone. If, we wait, if he waits that long, I pray, come Lord Jesus. But if he waits, he's going to continue. He's going to continue to dawn in people's lives, and you will see it, and we will rejoice as a church because we are in the business of seeing Jesus dawn on people.